0: This is the fourth podcast in the series A History of the 18th Century in Ten Poems. I'm Lizzie Atkinson, and last time I talked about how smallpox loomed large in the 18th century public imagination. I now turn to something which in many ways loomed even larger, the hoop petticoat. This garment became a favourite subject for censure in the male-dominated spheres of journalism and satire, as writers strove to shape the tastes of a consumer society whose descendant can be seen in our own 21st century. In this discussion, I'll be considering why petticoat poems were so popular as to be included in miscellanies, which will involve taking a quick peek under the hemline of the issues surrounding the hoop's literary presentation. I'm indebted to Kimberly Crisman's fascinating account of the backlash against the hoop, which you can find in the journal series 18th Century Studies. The hoop petticoat is a quintessentially 18th-century item, peaking in size and ubiquity in the 1750s. Court dresses were unsurprisingly the largest, some spanning up to six feet across at their widest point, but even one Elizabeth Perfoy in 1741, aged 68, would specify a hoop of the newest fashion, with a circumference of three yards and a quarter around the bottom, which would translate to nearly three metres in its oblong shape. That same year, an article in the London magazine speculated size was a key factor in the Hoop's sartorial success, complaining, a lady within that circle seemed to govern in the spacious verge sacred to herself. It seems that the Hoop drew new sweeping lines for the battle of the sexes to be fought across. I'll be looking at different ways this liminal frontier is presented in poetry and miscellanies. Moreover, I'll be looking at how male writers negotiated this threshold in order to appropriate and explore that uniquely female space reasserting traditional power dynamics, but also unwittingly revealing a secret to the hoop's enduring success. It's clear that what was perceived as female encroachment on male public space was deeply felt by writers. The periodical The Spectator warned in 1711 that should this fashion get among the ordinary people, our public ways would be so crowded that we should want street room, and that is exactly what happened. There's a sense of an invasion of a fashion that has thus hooped in almost all the nation, as the origin of the whalebone petticoat, a satire, puts it in 1714. This is an underlying reason that the lexical field of war is employed in many depictions of hoops. Indeed, in the second canto of Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock, Belinda's petticoat, armed with ribs of whale, takes the place of the shield in epic contexts, as she goes forth to fend off amorous advances at Hampton Court. Yet significantly... Oft we have known that sevenfold fence to fail. Rather than an impermeable shield, the barrier posed by the hoop is a fluid one, with the wearer ultimately controlling who can approach her and who is kept at bay. Writers, as we will see, seized upon the unstable identity of the hoop in their attack against this new-found female autonomy. The Rape of the Lock, an heroic comical poem to give its full title, was published in its final form in seventeen fourteen, and it clearly inspired to some degree the petticoat and heroic comical poem by Francis Shute. This poem was incorporated into the ladies' miscellany of 1718, alongside pieces on the art of dress, the fan, and unsurprisingly, the rape of the smock. I'm looking now at the frontispiece of the miscellany, which would have implicitly guided its female consumers on how to approach the text inside. One image shows a woman walking in a park, resplendent in her hoop, But crucially, on the left-hand side of the page are two men gesturing towards her, and clearly talking about her to each other. Reading from left to right, our eyes are likely to notice the men first, so we see the woman through the eyes of the men, as a recipient of male judgement. What's more, the woman's looking over at them rather expectantly, reflecting our gaze back to the men. So women would open this miscellany already looking for male guidance. The paratext has essentially created this demand, asserting as it does the superiority of the male viewpoint. So it's unsurprising that the poems of In are the product of male writers, who satirise female dress, but also write didactically, expecting their poems to be consulted by readers as a reliable barometer of male opinion, which we'll see later can be questioned. This isn't to say that writers didn't use women as a mouthpiece for satire against themselves, as can be seen in book two of The Petticoat. A council of women celebrate one Chloe's new invention, which she designed to conceal her illegitimate pregnancy. It's the hoop petticoat. We're back in the lexical field of war, and we can see that unstable signifier, the hoop, shifting from being a defender of chastity to a licenser of sexual promiscuity. Chloris announces, This new machine a sure defence shall prove and guard the sex against the harms of love. Later adding, so might the fair thus armed remain secure, and brave the dangers which they shunned before. Finally, Aurelia announces, Scandal no more shall blast the damsel's name. Safe in this covert shall remain her fame, and yield or not for ever be the same. This final thrust must be the decisive blow against the Hoop. Just as prostitutes could pass themselves off as ladies through their modest dress, as in Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, so too could virgins court scandal by resembling pregnant women. Whether you'd actually had sex or not, Shoot argues, becomes irrelevant when you all look like you have. We'll see in a moment why satirists couldn't let the matter lie there, and why women remained immune to these objections, but I'll just add that Pope and Shoot's choice of the mock epic as a genre in which to represent the Hoop is itself significant, Female autonomy enabled by the hoop is presented as a ludicrous imitation of male power, as ludicrous as comparing a mock-epit to the authentic version, or as effective as using a hoop as an actual machine of war. Despite the final nature of yield or not forever be the same, writers seemed almost obsessed with identifying who had and who hadn't yielded, A nonsensical but pervasive motif is illustrated in the 1705 Bordie Miscellany, The Frighted West Countryman's Garland, the first song being The West Countryman Frighted Out of His Forty Guineas by Being Catched Under a Lady's Hoop Petticoat. The denouement of these episodes was a cause of the discovery of the secreted man by outraged citizens. The Forty Guineas in this title refers to the bribe Johnny must give the woman's husband in exchange for his life. Discovery, however, can also mean to remove clothes, hence John Donne's ecstatic pun into His Mistress Going to Bed, How am I blessed in thus discovering thee? We can therefore see in Petticoat poems that any moralistic drive to expose sexual promiscuity was compounded problematically by the voyeuristic method of doing so. Joseph Addison in The Tatler in 1710 knowingly exploits this dual motive. His alias Isaac Bickerstaff presides over the mock trial of the hoop, and has it opened so that it formed a very splendid and ample canopy over our heads. Bickerstaff adds, I entered upon the whole cause of great satisfaction, as I say it under the shadow of it. So here's the crux of the matter in 18th century satires in society. Male attacks on the hoop petticoat fail, because they are compromised. Think back to the cover of The Ladies' Miscellany. How much is the male gaze censorious, and how much, well, curious? While this male titillation is validated by figures such as Isaac Bickerstaff, we should contrast this with the male anxiety surrounding female sexual appetite. This is another reason the war imagery of Pope and Shute's mock epics would have resonated. Even the title of the West Country Man Frighted by Being Catched Under a Lady's Hoop Petticoat suggests the hoop as a kind of voracious vagina dentata, hunting for its next victim. I noted in the previous podcast that petticoat poems can be found in miscellanies along with those on smallpox. It's this kind of apparently random juxtaposition that is so revealing about what concerned 18th century society, particularly when we consider poetry was the standard means of public communication. I wonder if miscellanies had survived as a popular medium today, what surprising combinations of topics we might encounter within them. Thank you for listening.